and welcome to Your Property Podcast. My name is Michelle Cairns, your host for today. And with me, we have got Daniel Wood. Hi, Daniel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here today. And you are a bit more unusual in your profile than um, our normal guests on here because you have a portfolio in the UK, but actually you're based abroad. So we're going to be talking today about remote investing. So do you want to give us a an overview of yourself and uh, a bit of a bit of a brief summary? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, so I am uh, I'm born and raised and live in Sweden. I apologize for the accent. My dad's American, uh, <laughs> but I'm born and raised in Sweden. And uh, a few years ago, uh, I was recommended this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and uh, got, uh, got so hooked on the idea of investing in property, but realized pretty quickly when I started doing due diligence on the Swedish market that it's very heavily regulated. It's very hard to get into. There is very little you know, support. Letting agents don't exist, for example. And so we started casting about, like, you know, where should we go? Where should we invest? And uh, we realized a couple of good markets exist in, in Europe, and being Spain, for example, and especially the UK. So because of the stability of the UK market, I mean, obviously, right now, we've been in a crazy couple of years with, with Brexit and with the, the pandemic. But overall, the UK market is a super stable market. And we decided to start investing in, uh, in the UK and, and have successfully built a portfolio and a lot of the properties I've never even seen with uh, live. Wow. Okay. Well, this is going to be interesting then. So let's start at the beginning then. So you, you do your due diligence and you, you, you realize that the UK has like the best statistics for your criteria. Okay. And then how did you decide where exactly, because I, I know your properties are located all over the country. Uh, I think a lot of people have a hard time just picking out, you know, a street nearby them where they live, you know, in, in their locality, let alone having the whole country to choose from. Yeah. So how did you decide which areas and why have you chosen to have a spread across the country? Well, yeah, that's, that's a brilliant question. And my first mentor, he taught me you know, you should always first decide your strategy, then you decide your area, and then you find a property. And I know for people living in the UK, that basically means, you know, I'm going to do buy to let, or I'm going to do HMO, or, you know, whatever my strategy is. And then by area, basically, you know, the street in my locale, or I'm going to go to another city. But for me, when I identified area, for me, that was a national decision, right? I decided the UK, or mainly England. And so for me, I'd made that area decision. Now, then property, yes, but for me, it's more about people because I'm outsourcing literally the entire project. I have a sourcing agent that finds me the deal. That sourcing agent needs to be able to provide a full turnkey solution. So they need to be able to provide a builder. They need to either be a project manager or provide a project manager. They need to be able to introduce me to a letting agent. They need to know the surveyors. They need to know the estate agents. So that a whole kind of pack needs to come with, which means to me, it doesn't, if I have a good person, it doesn't matter if I'm investing in Morecambe, in Brighton, in um, you know Birmingham or anywhere else in the country, because I'm not going to be there anyway. I'm going to have a team doing it. Um, but that's the challenge when you're doing remote investing is putting together that team When I started out on my first three deals, I got ripped off for about 400,000 pounds. 
And uh, that was obviously a rough start (laughs) to our investing career. Yeah. And that's the thing. People feel because we're not there, they feel that they can take advantage of us. Mm -hmm. And the problem is they can because we're very, very reliant on them. And especially when I started out, I didn't understand the fact that I needed to involve different people and make sure I had kind of people keeping an eye on each other. I kind of just trusted the person I'd been introduced to. And it turned out that they weren't necessarily good people or, or in some cases, just not capable people. And they got kind of strung along as well. And in the end, that, that almost caused us to go bankrupt. It almost caused us to have to give up before we got started because uh, I didn't have 400,000 pounds. I brought that in through investors. I was now in a position where we were you know, heavily in debt. Our projects weren't going well. And my accountant actually called me up one day and he said, Daniel, it's time to bankrupt your company. And, you know, when you hear that the first time, especially, and I say the first time it comes up as an entrepreneur, but, but, you know, my heart stopped. I was like, what do you mean? What does that mean? He basically said, Daniel, you're never going to be able to pay off this debt. The best thing we can do can't, you know, close down the company, liquidate the assets. And then you start over from zero. I'm like, whoa, start over from zero. And, you know, imagine hearing that when you're hundreds of thousands of pounds in debt, you have people calling you every single day going, Daniel, when am I going to get my money? And all I could say was, I don't know. And, you know, I hadn't been sleeping. And then my accountant just says, hey, how about we just start over from zero? You know, take what you've learned and go again. And I, I, it was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Of course, we're going to bankrupt the company. And then I asked one very faithful question. I asked, but if I don't have to pay that debt, who does? And he said, well, I mean, your investors probably won't get any of their money back. And I realized, okay, so it's not me starting over. It's me throwing everyone else under the bus, right? (laughs) And, and I'd say, and, you know, we said, well, no, we can't do that. Obviously we have to figure this out. And that's when we were so blessed to meet amazing people. I mean, we, we started working with Kim Kiyosaki, one of the authors of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. She gave us some brilliant advice of how to restructure our company we worked with Randy Zuckerberg's team. We worked with Tony Robbins' team and all of them helped us. And, and after, you know, we were able to restructure the debt, kind of get a little momentum going on our side. And then we went out and did deals. We did well over a hundred property deals and those good deals can kind of start compensating for the bad ones. And that's what got us to a place where we now actually have a stable portfolio and we're, we're able to you know, breathe in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. I did, there's so many questions I have on this. Um, so we'll just come back to the Kim Kiyosaki and the Tony Robbins team uh, in a bit, because that's a whole other uh, rabbit hole. But to come back to what you said about, there was a point where you realized you needed other people and some sort of accountability. Can you talk to us about, you know, who were those other people and how did you trust them? Yeah. Well, what I, what I do is I, I actually kind of lovingly now call this my, my circle of mutual distrust. <laughs> so because it's important to understand what is the relationship between the different entrepreneurs that are working for you. Because first off, you know, first off, I have the sourcing agent. And now we've created a community. Uh, we run Momentum Property Education. So we are a few hundred international property investors now, which means for the sourcing agent, you know, doing one deal with our community isn't, you know, that's fine. But really what they want to do is have a recurring business with our entire community, right? So that's the first thing is now the sourcing agent gains more from making sure the project goes well. And so that, that's one important point, uh, which I didn't have starting out because starting out, it was just me, right? So 
if they ripped me off, they ripped me off and they could move over to move on to the next. Now they lose, you know, a few hundred clients. The second party is the builder, which is where, as you know, most projects go, go to die. <laughs> so that's where a lot of the problem is. So there, I want to make sure I have people keeping an eye on the builder. And that's, you know, I'll have a project manager who might also be the sourcing agent, but on a bigger project will usually be a separate entity. And then I'll have the sourcing agent. And then I make sure I involve the lettings agent as well, because the letting agent obviously wants the project to be gorgeous because they're going to get this property and anything that's wrong is going to fall in their lap. They're the ones who have to find tenants. They're the ones that the tenants are going to complain to. They're the ones I'm probably going to blame when things start breaking in six months. And, you know, so they want the project to be perfect. So involving them as well and just having them go by the project occasionally and, you know, you can, you can ask them to, to give their opinion on, you know, color schemes and things because they want to do that because they want to get it tenanted. But that's also a way to get, make sure that they're taking a look over the builder's shoulder and going like, are you actually doing your job? Is for the builder, international investor, it's so easy. They could just switch out materials. They're telling me they're buying, you know, high grade, they buy mid-level. They can say, look, it's going to cost $400 for your washing machine or pounds for your washing machine. Well, you know what? They just bought a 200 pound washing machine and put in there. And I'll never know. Yeah. But if I have a good project manager, if I have the sourcing agent and I have the lettings agent, everyone keeping an eye on it, they're going to pick up on these things and, and uh, keep me informed. But okay. at the beginning, I just put all this on a sourcing agent who turned out to not be very reputable. And so they were the ones talking to all these. So you had one agent and obviously that didn't go well. And then now do you still just have one agent that finds all of the deals for you or do you work with different sources in different areas? Yeah, now we have six partners we work with. We have a very, very, very high level of uh, like criteria that, that our agents need to fulfill. And it's the same because anyone I work with works with our entire community. And we require them to have at least a decade's worth of experience. They have to have built a real sourcing agency where they've been able to employ people. Because as I say, if you're a one-man band, first off, if you get sick, then I'm the one in another country in trouble, right? Yeah. But if you've built, if you've hired people, that means you are confident that you have a recurring revenue, which either means you're great at tricking people <laughs> or you got recurring clients. And so that's one. And then obviously they have to have all the licenses, every, you know, licenses, insurances and everything. And then they have to be able to provide that local team. They have to have a good, strong team. And finally, the last part of the due diligence we do is we make sure that they have a very good local reputation. And this is where networks like, uh, you know, PIN come in so handy, where, you know, you can literally go to a PIN's Facebook group and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this builder, or I'm looking at this lettings agent, or I'm looking at this sourcing agent. What do you guys know about them? And you will hear back. If it's someone who's not doing well, people are going to tell you, oh, no, 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 stay clear. <laughs> And they usually do business with me instead, but <laughs> you'll get very small world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it is. Everyone knows everyone. And then I always make sure to take some testimonials. So even because sometimes it looks good from the outside. And then when you get into it, uh, maybe it wasn't so good. So we make sure we get both testimonials and the reputation. But if they fulfill those five criteria, that allows me to feel pretty confident in working with a person. And to me, it's more important that I'm working with good people because I've had my experience with 
less good people. <laughs> it's, it's so important. So if I then do a deal in Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, Morecambe, Newcastle, or Hull, it doesn't matter too much to me because a good sourcing agent can do a great deal in a bad area and a bad sourcing agent can make a horrible deal in the best area in the world. Yeah, I agree. And what about the actual structure with the letting agents? Do you have, a, is there a guaranteed rent? Because obviously if they're just taking a, you know, a certain commission, they might not be as motivated to look after it. Um, how does that work? It depends. It depends. Usually, you know, we do a very, very clear due diligence and we, when we work with the letting agents, you know, we have our requirements for, you know, how often they're going to do their, you know, their checks and, and uh, go to the property and stuff. So often we just pay a, you know, their fixed percent, they rent it out and, and we get, we get the rents. Um, but in other cases, we'll work with guaranteed rents. In other cases, we'll put it out to social housing. So, so it'll depend. And that's a part of the due diligence we do before we get into, de- into the deal. We need to know exactly what we're going to do with it, who we're going to be doing it with, and uh, make sure that they feel confident as well in, in our plan. It sounds like you know, a great model, whether you're in Sweden or a lot of London investors struggle to invest where they, uh, where they are and they're looking for uh, investments up north where there's better yields. Um, but how does it work with the actual... Uh, the profit margins because essentially you're you're buying in the peace of mind you're buying in all of these contacts you're buying in that power team uh, rather than having to build it from scratch on the ground or work with people uh, through social media or checking or checking everyone out and, and doing that kind of you know I, know I know a lot of people who they will travel up north and they will you know, for example, I'm based in Chester, so they'll travel to the Chester Pin and they'll try and build these relationships and build the power team. But if you're, you know, if you're buying that in, how does that affect the margins? That's a brilliant question. And there, there's, you know, and everything depends. It depends on who you are as a person and what your skill set is. I think it's always important to stick with your skill set. But in the end, if I know, I mean, a lot of people will go to, uh, you know, a property education, they'll get some training, they're really excited, and they will jump out into the world and get the very best deals. And sometimes they do strike gold. I mean, sometimes they really do. But someone who's been doing this for a decade, and knows everyone in the market, they're probably going to get better deals than, than, you know, your walk on investor. So usually what I see is I might pay a sourcing agent 5000 pounds for the deal. I might pay a, uh, you know, I'll pay a builder and then I'll pay a uh, project manager an additional 10% of the build. But if you look at it, the sourcing agent will definitely, 99% of the time, they'll get me a bigger, you know, say if I could have acquired a property at 100K, they're probably going to find a a similar property for 90K and then they charge me five. So they've already made me 5,000 pounds of profit. And then you know, compared to if I negotiated it myself, the property might be worth 120 and I could have gotten it at 100, they're getting it at 90. And then with the project manager and the, and the sourcing agent getting me the builder, well, if I'm a new investor and I'm trying to, you know, price up a property with a builder, you know, they're going to notice it pretty quickly. You know, builders are savvy. Uh, so they'll see, all right, rookie investor, I'll bump up my fees by 10 to 20%. He, she's not going to notice anyway. But the experienced project manager, the experienced sourcing agent is, and 
the builder wants to make sure they're always giving a better deal to them because they, they get that repeat business. So usually a good power team saves each time you're spending a thousand pounds, you're probably saving 15 to 20 or 15, 1500 to 2000, I mean, yeah. uh, back. And even if you're not, even if it's break even, it's break even and you don't have to do the work. Yeah. So that, but that's only if you have a good team, of course, a bad team that, like I said, 400,000 goes out the window really, really quickly. Yeah, I bet. I, it, it makes sense. Since, and when I'm thinking about, uh, you know, my investments and working with investors, I'm essentially looking for a project that's got double the profit, profit margin. So it needs to have a profit margin for myself and a profit margin for the investor, whether that's a JV partner or, or a fixed loan. So um, do you have a certain criteria, a certain type of project that you're looking for does it have to have planning game for example or is it just does it have to be high cash flowing like hmo that again it depends so much we we use 25 different sources of capital so one of the benefits i have of being international is while a lot of you in the uk you are so good at finding deals negotiating with vendors pricing up projects all that i don't do any of that right (laughs) So, you know, that's probably, you know, somewhere between 70 and 90% of your work as a property investor, I don't do, which means the little part that you spend 10% of your time with, you know, how to structure your deals, how to raise finance and, and how to, you know, work on, on that part of the business. That's where I spend essentially 100% of my time, meaning I've, we've been able to identify 25 different sources of capital for our deals, which means in some cases, the best thing I can do is buy a fully tenanted buy to let 10% cash on cash return. You know, if I put down a deposit of 30,000 pounds, I make 3000 pounds of cash flow every year. And then I get some capital gains. Sometimes that is the best way for me to invest because I can get that sponsored or, or just that security. In other cases where right now I'm converting a, an old factory in Stockport into 14 flats and three commercial units. And that wasn't a, it wasn't a planning play though. We bought it with planning and we're doing the conversion, but we're turning it into an apartment hotel and we're going to make a huge profit on the cash flow. So that's a high cash flow. We're doing a pub that we're in, uh, in uh, Manchester. We're turning a pub into uh, nine flats now. It's gone, and that's gone through planning. So it's gone a little back and forth. We were at one point up to 11 small ones. Now we're looking at eight or nine bigger ones. Um, but that's been a planning play and then we'll develop that and refinance. Uh, so everything depends a little bit on what source of capital am I using and how am I putting that together in the deal, which is also why I like having different sourcing agents because some of them will, you know, some of them just want to do your, you know, your developments. That's the only thing that gets them going. Others just want to get as many deals through as possible and buying fully tended to buy to lets is, is their dream. So that means depending on the money that's kind of coming to me through the door, I can then go to the right sourcing agent and say, hey, this is the type of deal I need. What do you have on the table right now? And usually because that's all they do is find deals, then they'll have a deal on the table and I can put that together quickly and take my cut. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, kind of reverse engineering and giving the sourcer your criteria rather than having you know a a table full of deals and thinking okay well which one shall I pick today (laughs) yeah well that's again that's one of the blessings I have is I can give a very clear hunting brief and said look right now this is what I'm looking for I don't want anything else I just want this and 
you know, for a sourcing agent or, or again, a UK investor, you guys are sifting through thousands of deals. You're doing so much work. You guys are so impressive. And all I do is like, well, great, Michelle, when you've spent those hours and hours and hours and you found a gem, then you call me and I'll spend an hour doing my due diligence on it. And then I'll say yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> and for me to do that, you've spent, you know, you've spent 50 hours, 100 hours to let me work for one or two and do my due diligence. And then I might just go, no, sorry, it wasn't up to my criteria. And <laughs> you're yeah. back to the drawing board. I have so much respect for that work you guys do. And I'm so happy I don't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what about the working with investors then? So have you, did you do that from day one or, you know, did you have your own portfolio that you started out with and then you brought investors along? Now we dove uh, both feet first right away. And we, we didn't have basically any savings. We put everything into our home. So we refinanced our home three times in the first year (laughs) and then ended up selling it actually to pull out the last equity uh, but that was because of this crash we had where we kind of lost all the investors' money and we had to start turning things around. Uh, but no, we went out right away and started trying to raise investor capital. We were just like these people you hate who, you know, basically start knocking on your door asking for money. Um, and so some people, you know, really, you know, we lost contact with some of our old friends because we were a little too eager, a little too excited. We didn't let them kind of get into it the same way we did. But over time, you know, we started, uh, we, we started raising more and more finance. And then sadly, we had that crash and it uh, took a while to turn things around. But uh, I think a lot of people appreciated the way we did act. You know, the fact that we didn't bankrupt the company, like I said, we could have. Yeah. Uh, and we chose not to. And obviously, some people don't like it anyway. They're like, well, look, I, I gave you the money. I expect my return. And, you know, you were late with your payment. So, you know, you're a horrible investor. And I respect that because we didn't fulfill on yeah. that. But at the same time, we could have said, look, I'm walking away. You get nothing. Yeah. And we're, we're making sure every single investor gets their money back and uh, hopefully a little profit, you know, for, for them all, but all of them don't get that profit based on how long they were in and, and you know, and honestly, how, how nice they have been, <laughs> how nice they were about it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we were able to turn things around thanks to these deals and, and kind of solve those situations and, and uh, work with them. I'm curious that, you know, it, it takes a lot of guts to kind of go back and say, okay, Things went wrong last time, but this time really is going to be different. <laughs> um, you know, how did you deal with that? Because I think that's, you know, one of a, a big fear of people who are growing a portfolio and working with investors that, you know, as much due diligence as you can do, sometimes things go wrong, global pandemics, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you've obviously, some people would have just gone bankrupt, disappeared, but you haven't, you've come back and... And then you've managed to raise, you know, go on to raise more money. So, uh, you know, I'm just curious from a kind of um, mindset point of view and practically, how did you approach those conversations? Well, so essentially the way I saw it, you know, is we, we owed about 400,000 pounds. And as you said, we could have bankrupted, we could have gone back to work and, you know, just said, oh, it didn't work, I'm done. Um, but kind of the, the moral base we have is, no, I would make sure these investors got paid back. 
And I, I actually, you know, we, I did consider it at a point and I ran through the numbers and essentially my next 30 years of work, you know, every, you know, everything I would have spent on vacations and stuff for 30 years would have gone to paying back those investors. So essentially it's like, all right, either I give away my life and I just work to make these investors their money back or I keep going. And so it wasn't really an option. I essentially, we burned our bridges behind us. So the only option was forward. And I mean, at the same time, I felt, you know, we had done our best and I respect that most of those investors, even when they got their money back, many of them will never trust me, like me, want to work with me. And, and I knew that kind of going in to giving them that news. So I was just very blunt. And I said, look, this is the balance sheet. This is how it looks. And, uh, you know, a little bit of a take it or leave it or I'll bankrupt the company. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I was going in there with the like, this is the balance sheet. I'm going to put in 400,000 pounds into this company. If you're happy with that, I'll do it. If you're not, that's okay. I'll bankrupt the company and I won't put in 400,000 pounds. What do you think? Yeah. And, you know, some people are going to be like, well, Daniel, I think you should put in 500,000 because I want to make my profit. Mm -hmm. And I basically said, no, I'm putting in 400, take it or leave it. And, and, you know, grumbling and such aside, you know, at the same time, there's not anything else they could do because legally I, I could just bankrupt it and go away. So I think, Again, I, I'm sure some of them will never want to do business with me again. And but some of them, though, have been very, very good about it. They've been like, you know, you, they've they've really been like, wow, you stepped up. You did you did what you had to do. You you paid me back, and I really appreciate this. Yes, I'm in. Um, but I've been I've I've tried very carefully with those investors since. You know, I don't come to them first with the pitch, but I do. I do try to stay cordial with everyone. You know, I, I have a habit where I, every day I check Facebook for who has a birthday and I send everyone a short video birthday message. And so when those investors come up, I'll send them their birthday message. And, you know, some people just ignore it and other people, it sparks a conversation and, and that can lead to them, you know, actually saying, Hey, look, it's been a year. It's been two years since, since we got out of it. I've thought about it. You've had, and this conversation I've had, and uh, you, you, you actually, in the greater scheme of things, you actually did really, really well. I'd be open to having a new conversation and it's led to, to new investments. So there, I think sometimes, you know, right in the middle of it, uh, emotions are high and you kind of got to stand your ground and kind of say like, look, this is what, and just be honest about it. Really. It's, this is what happened. I screwed up. I lost this money. This is the balance sheet. This is the result. Now these are my options. Mm -hmm. And, and I was very clear, either I'm going to put money in and it's going to take me a little while, but I'm going to do it. Or I just bankrupt the company and I don't have to put money in. And that is so much better for me. What do you want me to do? And uh, when you don't really give them the third option to put in 500, 600, 700,000, because again, my compounding was going the wrong way, right? Yeah. <laughs> I had some properties generating, you know, 10, 15%, but I borrowed money at 10% interest. The problem was there was so much more interest coming in than, than income, even though the return on those deals, the equity was just so much smaller. So every month, I was, you know, falling further and further behind. So I could have worked for the rest of my life pumping money in. Yeah. So I had to go in and be honest and just say, look, I can't afford it. We, yeah. we got to restructure this debt. It's not going to happen. Hey, I think uh, offering them the in initial investment back is so much more than what a lot of people would have done. So I'm sure. Yeah. 
And I, I make sure everyone gets a little interest uh, profit as well, because I know a lot, a lot of them did pull out money from their house. So I know they've had carrying interest cost. So even if I just gave them their, their initial interest, they walk away with a loss. Okay. So I have an investor now, we're actually paying them back uh, next week. They're one of the last ones to come out of that. You know, it's been years working through and we have turned it around, but uh, you know, we have to release equity as we go. And now we're paying back one of the last ones now. And we agreed that they would essentially, they've had a carrying interest cost for the, the I think four years they've been in five years they've been in. And what we did was essentially, we said, all right, what we'll do is we'll pay your initial amount plus your interest carrying cost times three. And now this is Swedish interest. So that's only like 1% per annum interest. So it's not very much. They make about 3% profit over a 5% of over a five-year period, but they do make a profit. And I can say, look, I left them profitable even though obviously it wasn't really what either of us had in mind. <laughs> Fair enough. With new investors, what do you well, say? I, I'm, I'm very clear now. I don't borrow money at, at high fixed interests anymore. Uh, I actually spoke to Kim, uh, Kim Kiyosaki about this when, when we said, look, we'd been borrowing money at 10% interest because that's what we learned. I know that's what lots of companies are teaching in the UK. Oh man, she went crazy. She was like, that is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. Why? Why would you offer that much interest? That's yeah. madness. And, and we said, well, everyone does. And she's, well, everyone's an idiot. <laughs> she said, don't do that. And so what I do now is what she said is either I offer a low interest, usually four to 46% fixed, or I say they, get, they can get a, a fixed interest and a share of cash flow. So they can get like 2% plus a share of cash flow or they do a straight up joint venture. And by doing that, what happens is I make sure that these structures allow them to get a higher return. So on you know, fixed interest, maybe they get 5%. On interest plus cash flow, they're getting 2%. And then we maybe expect a 6% would be their cash flow share. So they're getting 8%. And then in a joint venture, we're, we might expect them to get 10 to 15%. But that means so they can make more money than at a 10% potentially. But if things don't go according to plan, a joint venture partner gets zero. A share of cash flow will only get those 2% fixed and a fixed interest will only get their five. So it means that what happened to me when the compounding was going in the wrong direction, I've now flipped that. So if things go right, I'm paying people insane amounts. I mean, I have a deal now where my joint venture partners are gonna, once the project is done and it's been delayed because of COVID, but once the project is done, they're gonna get a full cash out. They'll still retain you know, equity in the company, which means they'll be getting a 12% per year return on their investment, even though they got all their money back. Yep. And, and that's so much better than a fixed 10%. But again, the project's been a year delayed because of COVID. Had I been paying 10% interest, that's a million pounds I brought in in investor capital. That would have cost me 100,000 pounds right there. So structure is so important. And I learned so much from sitting. Uh, we, had, uh, we had her as a speaker here in Sweden, and we had three dinners with her and her friends. And uh, she explained these things. And then she jumped on a multiple calls with us afterwards. But we walked through these structures, and she is truly brilliant. Go on, then. I'm dying to know. How did you, uh, how did you end up working with Kim Kiyosaki? Oh, it was so cool, actually. It was, um, 
So for, it was pretty soon after we started our investment journey, while we still thought things were going well, yeah. <laughs> uh, Kim was in Norway. Oh, actually it was Robert was, Robert was in Norway, but Kim was, was there with him. And so we went from Sweden, from Stockholm, we drove to, to Oslo and we'd actually lived in Oslo and we had our, uh, our oldest son with us who was, uh, no, sorry, our middle son with us, Alex, uh, it was a baby at the time, newborn, just a couple weeks old. And uh, we, we got there and uh, we had backstage tickets and stuff. And, and uh, the moment Kim kind of came into the, into the green room, she saw Alex and she made a beeline towards us. And for the rest of the day, she hung out with me and Gisela and Alex. And so we had a full day together and that's, that was it, right? It, we left it there. Um, but years later, we started doing events and I, we were the partner to Tony Robbins through Success Resources for Sweden. So we're doing all the Tony Robbins events. And uh, uh, one of the other promoters for Tony Robbins reached out to me and said, hey, Daniel, uh, you know, we're having an event with Kim Kiyosaki here in Estonia. And, uh, you know, she's going to do a tour. Uh, would you like her to come to Sweden as well? <laughs> well... Like said, now, yeah, I'd be I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'll, I'll split an airfare. I'll split an airfare. And so we brought her and it was her four friends, um, Seal Stanford, Rhonda Burns and Jagger. Oh, I'm forgetting her first name now. Rhonda Jagger. There, there we go. Rhonda, Rhonda Lisa and, and Seal. And so uh, I picked them up at the airport and it was hilarious. They had like a million and one bags and I got there with my car. I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't think I have room. <laughs> so the uh, two of them have to go and take a cab. So I sat with uh, Kim and Seal in my car and, you know, I drove them to one of the nicest hotels in Stockholm who we'd brought in as a sponsor to the event. So we'd gotten, you know, we'd gotten them really nice rooms at like, you know, bargain prices and then, uh, you know, we took them out to dinner, we took them out in town, and, and then we had the event, and it was fantastic, and then they stayed uh, a couple days extra, and then we just got to know each other, so, uh, mm -hmm. and, and we set it up, it was actually a free event uh, that we set up, and we invited, it was women only, so it was our empowered women event, uh, so I was the only man who had <laughs> the honor to see Kim there, so it was, oh. that was pretty cool, uh, and I think we had uh, four to 600 people who were there in the, in the wow. audience and, and learned and it was just a fantastic, fantastic event. That sounds really cool. Wow. It's a, what a story. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually I interviewed her now uh, just a few months ago for the momentum investing podcast. Uh, so it was one of, it's actually, if you go to our YouTube channel, momentum property education, it comes up as our kind of uh, featured yeah. video there. <laughs> uh, so it's really cool. I mean, she is so smart. She's the one who runs hers and Robert's property empire. Yeah, I heard. I heard. I've seen a lot of her stuff. And um, obviously, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is the, uh, the book. It's, it's where it's where many people get started, especially, yeah. um, you know, in our networks. It seems to be like the number one consistent kind of light bulb moment a lot of people have. Um, I know it was for me as well. But um, I just want to come back before we finish to um, something you said earlier about having, you know, property in Birmingham and a property in Liverpool. So there's one thing kind of building as you go. But if you've got different projects on the go at the same time, what sort of systems have you got in place, not just obviously for the acquisition and the refurbishment, but ongoing management when you're doing different projects at the same time? You've got, you know, tenants, obviously, you've got the lessing agency 
to to help out there but are there any key um systems or processes that you use to you know to help you invest remotely uh, that's a brilliant question i probably should use more but what we do is because we've outsourced everything so much to me it's it's really just following up with people right i don't need to do all the reports i don't need to have the the system so i use trello Mm-hmm. And to keep my, that's how I keep my day planner. Literally, I don't use a calendar. I use Trello for everything. And so every day it, what it spits out, like this is my to-do list for every day. And so with different team members, like in the project, I'll have weekly follow-ups that I have with, you know, the project manager. And, and sometimes we involve the builder uh, or the architect, depending on the project. Uh, and when it's a project that's leaded, well, you know, we do our monthly, you know, I make sure I get my monthly statement and then we usually do quarterly follow-up. So it all's just there in my Trello system to follow up with people, make sure things are, are being handled and, and run. But other than that, I can kind of sit back and, and relax and not really think too much of the properties. Oh. Okay. So well, what, um, any tips for anybody looking to, to do a turnkey kind of package if they're investing, whether it's in the within the UK or or abroad. Uh, you've mentioned before, you know, about the due diligence involved and but anything that we haven't mentioned that comes to mind or kind of key points that you want to emphasize. Well, the, the big point really is, and I mean, we're starting to work more and more with people in London uh, investing because it's still remotely. That's, yeah. that's what I know. So, you know, we don't work with anyone who's like, I want to go and do viewings or I want to be a sourcing agent. It's like, great, go talk to someone in the UK who actually knows what they're doing. But, but remote investors is, is what we know. And what's really important, first off, is to have great people, right? That's, that's the key. Without great people, you got nothing. That's your business. So, and that's important too, is to treat them right because sourcing it, good sourcing agents do not grow on trees. You know, they are really hard to find. They're worth their weight in gold. So literally, you know, over, you know, send them gifts, you know, just (laughs) suck up to them. You know, they're fantastic. And then, you know, when, when you're, when you get a deal, even though, you know, you love them, you take care of them, you cherish them, never trust their numbers. You mm-hmm. always have to do your own due diligence because at the end of the day, no matter how good they are, they are salespeople. And yeah. that might mean, and that what that will mean, those two things, some will always give you the kind of the, the best case scenario numbers while others will actually give you the worst case scenario numbers because they want to downsell the deal and then overperform so that you become like, Oh, wow, this one's so well, you want to know, what am I buying? Why am I buying it? What can I expect? And then, you know, your, your, the delivery should not be over or underachieved. It should be what you expected if you're doing your job right. And if you have the right team, that's what's going to happen. But again, never trust their numbers, but trust them anyway as, as their partner and, and get amazing people that you can feel that you can trust. That's really good advice there. And I'd, uh, I'd back that one on the numbers. So I've seen so many, you know, quote unquote deals where the, the numbers and the figures they use are just off the wall and uh you know they might be saying well this is i I met somebody who'd come up from london and she had a a six-bed hmo and 
you know, the numbers would have been fine, but it was sat there empty and it was in like the worst area where no professional would ever have, you know, stepped foot in, you know, let alone they they were struggling to let it out to, um, you know, to to kind of local LHA tenants. So to get professionals there was just absolutely never going to happen. So, yeah, I just think the due diligence and really um, highlight that point there. So you can really do it remotely too. All the data is there. Yeah. You yeah. know, what type of people live in the area? What is their salary? What kind of jobs do they have? Do they own? Do they rent? Are they LHA? Are they student? You know, all that info is there. You just have to, I guess, care enough or and have the knowledge enough to put in that time. I mean, our students they get video, a video series that walks them through that. It's like four hours, just step-by-step. Step, this is how you do it. And once you do it, it's, it's so easy, but it's the difference between, as you say, buying a deal in the wrong area and never getting it tenanted. It's, <laughs> the numbers look great, but yeah. the reality never lives up to it. Absolutely. So where can people find out more about working with you and, um, and more about what you do? Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking. Well, first off, we have the Momentum Investing Podcast where we have amazing guests like uh, Michelle Cairns mm-hmm. uh, coming on the show. Uh, we have, you know, Simon Zucci. We've had Kim Kiyosaki, Jordan Harbinger, Ben Chai. Amazing people come on the show. Um, we also have a Facebook group called the International Property Investors. So we'd love to connect with you there. Uh, and we're also on, well, we're pretty much on uh, any social media. So you can find us on YouTube, Momentum Property Education, Instagram. We post a lot of news updates and, you know, what's going on in the market at Momentum Property Education. And we're now on Clubhouse too. So if you want to connect <laughs> with me there, uh, Daniel Wood, we've done some great rooms, Michelle. Uh, we've done some with Simon. Had uh, You were there when on Saturday when oh. all of a sudden Les Brown jumped into our room and just monologued for <laughs> half an hour. And I was like, wow, Les, you're here. He's like, yeah, I'm here, Daniel. I'm here with you. And uh, so hopefully he's coming on our podcast as well. So awesome. uh, yeah, you meet amazing people on all these different places. We got, we've, we're, we got a very good network. So yeah, any, any social media connect with us. And uh, I would like to end by giving everyone a little gift if, if that's okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we have for anyone who's starting out, who's like literally going like, I would love to get into property, but I don't, you know, I don't know all the strategies. I don't know how to raise the finance. I honestly don't know how to calculate the deals. We've created a free course. It's two hours, just walks you through the basics, gives you the vernacular, lets you understand what's going on in this little world. It's called the three simple steps to property investing and the three most common mistakes new investors make and how to avoid them. So you can find that for free at MomentumGift.com. So uh, it's our gift from Momentum, MomentumGift.com. We'll uh, put that into the show notes. Thank you very much. It sounds really useful. Well, thanks very much for your time and um, look forward to seeing you in social media land, you know, Clubhouse or wherever we might cross again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Take care, Daniel. And for anyone who has not yet subscribed to the magazine, please click the link in the show notes for your free first copy. See you next time, guys.